Hi, I'm Joe Feeks, editor of Pig Health Today, and with me is John DeYoung. He is a nutritionist for the Pipestone Grow Finish team. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You know, I've heard it said that if everything is going well in the pig's gut, then everything will go well with the rest of the pig. Is that, is that true? <laughs> I think uh, it can be true at times. Uh, in general, I think uh, if the pig has good gut health and and the pig gets off to a good start as a nursery pig. I think they've got a, a lot of good things that can go for them. I think there's some respiratory issues that can negate good gut health, but I do think the two are tied um, in some extent. So, Now, for years, the pork industry have been using um, medications in the feed to control a lot of enteric problems, whether they be uh, ileitis or uh, different forms of enteritis and so forth. Uh, with the industry backing off some of these feed medications, I imagine that's keeping you as a nutritionist pretty darn busy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been tasked uh, from our leadership, which I think is good sound wisdom, but tasked with how can we replace antibiotics as we move forward as a company and, and really as an industry? What are we going to do if, if there becomes a day that no antibiotics are available and, and not even just antibiotics, but, you know, we feed uh, high levels of zinc and copper in the nursery and Europe has already started regulating those mm -hmm. and so uh, in terms of how much you can add into the diet and so for us you know constantly looking for alternatives to antibiotics in the feed and, and pharmaceutical levels of zinc and copper in nursery diets. And is that really the objective is to try to replace antibiotics? You feel you can do that with nutrition? Yeah I think everyone would like to replace antibiotics that's you know everyone's looking for that silver bullet that might exist out there we, we have yet to find it and so I think uh, as we move forward, I think there's going to be a lot of things that they are going to come into play and it'll be a multifaceted approach, whether that's environment and production setups, whether that's uh, herd health starting at the sow farm, and then the other piece is nutrition. And so all those things combined, I think, will will help alleviate the effect of not having antibiotics in our in our toolkit. I don't think there ever will be a replacement for antibiotics. That's not the, that's not the goal. Now, when we look at the gut of, of pigs, um, and it is this microbiome, which is the, the population of all these organisms within the gut, correct? Yeah. And so you've got good bacteria, you've got bad bacteria. How do you manage the good and the bad through nutrition? Yeah, great question. And, and I think the human side has actually taught us a lot on, on, this, on this side of things. You know, they've done a lot of work with the microbiome and and particularly with folks uh, that have, for example, Crohn's disease or, mm -hmm. or clostridium issues, they will actually do what's called a fecal transplantation where they take you know, fecal material from a healthy person and, and implant that into a person who's not healthy. And really they're just trying to restart the biome in that person's intestinal tract. And, and when we look at the pigs, you know, we're kind of taking a, a, a note out of the human medicine side and, and trying to implant that on the swine side. Are we there today? Absolutely not. The, the research is, is just starting, I think, for from our team on the nutrition side and the vet staff at our at our company. This is maybe one of the new frontiers is trying to understand the microbiome of the pig and, and how does that interact when we use antibiotics in the feed and how does that interact when we use different feed additives and, and will there be a day where we can do fecal transplantations in pigs? We've, we've shown, uh, not we, but others have shown recently you can do that. Uh, with some success in a couple of really interesting studies. I think it's got a lot of people excited about what could be uh, coming down the pipeline. Now you mentioned that Europe is um, getting producers to back off of certain levels of zinc and copper. Uh, what's driving that? Yeah, I think a lot of it is environmental regulation. Uh, you know, if we feed in 
uh, and have pigs ingest high levels of minerals, there's certainly going to be higher levels of minerals in the manure. And so for them, I think it's more of a regulatory standpoint from uh, the manure quality, but for us, we, we know that zinc and, and copper do have some antibiotic-like effects in the, in, the, in the pig gut, even though they aren't antibiotics. So what are the types of ingredients that have been commanding most of your attention recently? What, what, what really has you excited? Yeah, so there's, you know, the, the list of feed additives is long, and the, the list of companies trying to sell them is even longer. And uh, I think uh, there's a lot of good options out there. Uh, you know, some of the, the best things we've seen out there today, kind of generalizing them, would be, you know, the use of organic acid in nursery diets, the use of direct-fed microbials or probiotics and prebiotics. Um, zinc and, and copper are effective things there, uh, and as well as a few others. But I think what we need to do as an industry is understand that there'll be situations where these feed additives do and, and don't succeed. And we need to understand when, when are we going to give those uh, additives the best chance to succeed in the pig? And, and can we be okay if a product is only successful 70% of the time? You know, typically when I uh, judge somebody coming in selling, trying to sell something, right, I want something that's effective 100% of the time, and it's that silver bullet. And I think, I don't know that we're ever going to find that silver bullet. And so I think there's a bit of a shift in terms of how we think and evaluate products on the market in terms of, can we be okay if it's only successful 70% of the time? Well, and that's a really good point because, you know, if you're using uh, feed medication, for example, well, maybe it's not 100% mm -hmm. effective, but it's, it's darn close in, in many cases if it's used properly under the right conditions. But, you know, when, when you're talking about uh, nutritional supplements and so forth, you might be 70%, you might be 30%, or it might be 70% this week and only 30% next week. So how do you get around that inconsistency. Yeah, so the big thing for us is uh, when folks do research, I think one thing that it's key is they need to have mortality and morbidity results in their research. You have to have a trial that's gonna be set up in order to find those differences. And, and really, if you can create a mortality and morbidity health difference in those pigs, it's really easy to pay for products that can improve uh, the health of those pigs. And the second thing is, you know, we need uh, the folks that are doing research uh, and developing these products to just be honest with us and, and be able to show us the data when it didn't work. Yeah. You know, we do research on our own and I understand that things don't always work the way they should when you do a research trial. And so understanding uh, when those products do and don't work and having good data that's, you know, I think transparent from those uh, ingredient companies is certainly key for us to make good decisions. Do we need to change our standards? Because generally, again, using feed medications as an example, we would look at the, the efficacy against the disease, but we'd look at things like average daily gain and feed conversion and so forth. Um, what sort of measurements do you use when evaluating a, a nutritional product? Yeah, I think uh, you know we use a couple different ones, growth performance being one of them, average daily gain, feed conversion. We clearly look at cost. What is it going to cost to do whatever technology or new new thing you want to do, what is that going to cost? You know, typically they don't reduce cost, they add cost. Mm -hmm. And so we look at cost. And really the big thing that I think from our standpoint we need to look at at the end of the day is what is the return on that investment? Uh, there's going to be some cost associated with it. What is the return and, and how often can we expect to get that return? You know, maybe it's not 100% of the time, maybe it's 70% of the time. And, and trying to do some type of adjusted return on investment knowing that it's not going to work every time out in the field. So what are you telling uh, your customers right now because they're looking at this saying, well, I'd, I'd like to maybe cut back on some of the feed med medications. I know that's what consumers want, um, but boy, I, I, I can't be comfortable with 
50% success rate. How do they get around that? A colleague of mine says, uh, you know, don't trip over a dollar to try to pick up a dime. And I think a lot of times we're looking at how do we reduce costs and our cost production in the pig. And what we end up doing is hurting ourselves in the long run. And as we pull costs and costs down or pull things out of the diet, we know that those pigs might perform uh, worse or maybe even have higher mortality because of those things that we're trying to do to reduce costs. And so we end up in the long run costing ourselves money or performance or, or really a return on that investment when we start pulling things out. Are there certain segments of production, uh, whether it be the, 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 the young baby pigs or the growth finish pigs or maybe even in the breeding herd, um, where some of these nutritional supplements can maybe have more consistency or more payback than others? Yeah, I think there's a couple scenarios where some of these additives and uh, new technologies can be more effective. One is uh, when you feed a marginal diet, right? Marginal in some type of nutrient capacity or other capacity, I think those ingredients can have a higher success rate. The other place I think that they may have a higher success rate is when we know we have some type of consistent health challenge in those pigs. And if we have a consistent health challenge uh, in the flow of pigs that we're working with, I think some of these products you know, maybe are more advantageous when those pigs are in a bit of a stressful environment. Now, I know every operation is, is going to be different, but what can producers do today nutrition-wise to uh, perhaps create a, a, a healthier gut in their growth finish pigs? Yeah, I think it all starts at the beginning. When those pigs are weaned, we know it's a stressful event. They're going away from the sow and, and transitioning from an entirely milk diet to a, a corn and soybean meal-based diet and high in grain and different, uh, different energy source, carbohydrate source. And so I think the first two weeks is key in the nursery and trying to get those pigs to consume as much feed as possible, trying to keep their gut intact as they transition from diet to diet is certainly key. And then I think there's some technologies out there that have shown to be fairly effective. Maybe they're not effective all the time, but things like organic acids and some of the probiotics I think that are out there do have their place in some of these swine diets. And, and then as we think long-term and over the life of those pigs, uh, certainly the first two weeks is going to be key. And I think a lot of your long-term health is going to be the, the, the foundation and groundwork is laid in those first two weeks after weaning. But as you look over the life of the pig, I think there's maybe some other technologies that are out there um, that maybe have a decent effect in terms of the, the health of that pig and, and specifically to the gut health. You know, xylanase is an enzyme that is out there I think a lot of folks use in terms of reducing mortality. Um, and then I think, you know, just making sure that we're, we're not uh, marginal in terms of how we're feeding these pigs, whether it's dietary energy, dietary amino acids, uh, when you start to put stress on these pigs and, and by trying to reduce costs and, and putting what I would call a marginal or a deficient diet in front of them, I think that leads to some of the other issues that we have in terms of health status in these flows. Now one final question. Um, uh, research by your colleague Scott D has um, put a pretty solid link between feed ingredients imported from China and the risk of importing uh, foreign animal diseases. Um, as a nutritionist, what are you doing to try to keep feed safe? Yeah, the biggest thing we've done is, is really twofold. First, if there's ingredients that we can source from countries not infected with African swine fever, we've chose to make that decision, uh, knowing that it may cost us more to go get ingredients sourced from countries that mm -hmm. currently don't have an ASF infection. So that's one thing we've done. Uh, the second thing we've done is, is tried to increase the amount of time that those products that we do have to source from countries like China or Eastern Europe 
uh, as they come into the country, we tried to institute some type of a quarantine time. And so we know with viruses, uh, with most viruses, time is on your side. If you can prolong the amount of time in between when that ingredient could have been infected and when we enter it into a pig, the longer you can extend that, the better chance you're going to have of reducing the risk of transmission of some disease. So okay. between those two things, we've, we've done our best. It's been difficult to institute quarantine times and to try to source ingredients from different places, but uh, I think uh, a lot of work and a lot of a lot of movement in that direction across the industry to try to protect the industry, not even just the pipestone system.